Welcome back to We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing for survivors of interpersonal trauma. This is Jessica, and you're listening to episode number 19, Barriers to Service for Male Survivors. In this episode, we'll be discussing some of the challenges and barriers that male survivors face when seeking support and coming to terms with their traumatic experiences. We'll also discuss some ways that men tend to cope with their experiences of abuse. So first, I'd like to start us off with an interview that I did with Carl Olson and Chris Leck, two colleagues of mine at CSU, who spend much of their time working with men on the CSU campus. In a moment, I'll let them introduce themselves. And after the interview, I'll provide a few more insights into barriers for male survivors. Well, thanks, Chris and Carl, for joining us here in the studio. Thanks for having us. So before we get started, would you both mind sharing with our listeners some of your salient identities? Go for it. Oh, you're going to make me go first. That's that's right. All right. Well, it's appropriate, I guess. I identify (laughs) as a white, cis, um, hetero male. Um, I think other identities that oftentimes show up for me um, having conversations like this uh, uh, as uh, being a parent as well. Um, I work here on campus at here at CSU in the counseling center. So I do a lot of work with folks around drugs and alcohol. It's a, usually where I spend most of my time, but I do a lot of general services stuff as well, um, working around anxiety, depression, and um, trauma as well. And my name is Carl. I identify as a mixed race individual, Japanese and white. Um, I also identify as disabled, depression, and hearing loss. I also am heterosexual. I'm a cis man. And I'll share here that I also identify as a survivor. Um, so we'll kind of talk, quote, quote, unquote, survivor. We'll get into that, but that's how I'm going to show up today. And my role on campus is men's programming and violence prevention coordinator at the Women and Gender Advocacy Center. Cool. Thanks. So can you tell us a little bit about how your work intersects with male survivors in your unique roles? As a men's programmer, I think some of my work with men who identify as survivors is through advocacy, but most of it intersects with um, working with men to prevent sexual violence um, and shifting the culture of men. Uh, And so it ties into men as survivors in a different way, I think, in terms of negotiating the complicated dynamic of can we, or I mean, we do support men who uh, identify as survivors of sexual violence through shifting the culture of men because the culture of men isn't necessarily conducive to supporting men who identify as survivors. Um, so I've got sort of this back end approach to and how it intersects. A lot of our men in the movement guys are also secondary survivors. Uh, they come in and they're interested in the work because they know someone who has who is identified as a survivor of sexual assault. Um, and there are absolutely men who are survivors in the, in the group as well. Well, and I don't even think I can talk about my role and what I do without talking about the referrals that I get from you, Carl, because I think people show up on your doorstep at, or in your office or at your programs and things like that. And I guess I'm kind of curious, what's that conversation like? Um, so I think one of the most important factors to think about, like the reason why I give so many referrals to you is one, I trust you as a counselor for them, but two, um, we have created an environment that absolutely sort of bucks the traditional notions of masculinity enough so that survivors in the group come forward. Um, and and I can't necessarily describe how we do that in this particular interview, um, but I think it's important for men who are survivors to know that environments like that exist. Uh, and sometimes you might have to create them yourself, but some of them are out there, especially here at CSU. Mm-hmm. How do you, how does your I role intersect? For, no, well, sorry. I think Go for ahead. my role, you know, working as a counselor in the counseling center, I get, you know, I I get referrals from a lot of different places. I get referrals specifically from you and the other people at the Women and Gender Advocacy Center. Um, 
sending folks who have identified themselves as victims or survivors, but I also do enough presentations or enough talks around campus and stuff like that, that I either get somebody coming up to me after a presentation or um, an email after a presentation of, hey, can I talk to you? Or Mm -hmm. can can my partner talk to you? Can my brother talk to you? Um, And so then I do a lot of that stuff that you know, typical counseling stuff, I would say, with victims and survivors. Um, but that's where it shows up for me most often. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, like, even as cis men, talking about men as survivors makes people come out of the woodwork a lot in terms of, totally. like, men showing up and being like, holy crap, like, there's some other dude-looking person that I can kind of relate with. There's something there around us sharing as men our own identities and our own vulnerabilities that has survivors come forward and start talking about what they've experienced. Mm-hmm. So on the same kind of thread, what do you what do you both see as some of the barriers to men seeking services around their survivor identity? So some of the barriers that I put down are men are supposed to be strong, mm-hmm. right? And I think when when we're out on campus and we ask the population of students, what are the first three words that come to mind when we ask you, what does it mean to be a man? The word strong and strength comes up almost like across the board for everybody. Um, so I think it's a very real idea that men are supposed to be strong in a lot of different ways, both physically physically and emotionally. And I think a man who experiences sexual violence could see themselves as weak. Like that could be a sign of weakness that you were assaulted in the first place. And that can absolutely be a barrier to come forward and talk about your experiences. When I think back to, you know, to the emotional, emotional strength part, I always ask people like, what do you mean around emotional strength? And for a lot of people, it means that I don't react to the emotions that I'm having, or Mm -hmm. I don't let them control me, or I don't let them dominate me, or I don't let them influence me in any way, shape or form. And so that's a not possible, b not healthy. Um, And so when uh, an assault happens or violence happens and there is an emotional reaction, then it's another layer of, well, this is now my weakness in admitting um, that this happened to me, admitting that I'm struggling with it, admitting that I might need to talk to somebody or I might need some help or something like that. So it's like the barrier of like, if I were stronger, this wouldn't have happened. And the barrier of if I were stronger, quote unquote, stronger, um, then I wouldn't be reacting to it or I wouldn't be having these emotions about it. Right. Or I don't need help. I think that's another barrier for men is the very act of asking for help for something I think is considered unmanly. I think it's connected to the idea of femininity, right? The way men are socialized in general is to like abhor femininity, to to think of the feminine as a weakness or as uh, something that we can't be as men. And so the idea of coming forward to ask for help, um, I think, is another barrier at, because of the way that we're taught in terms of we need to handle our business. Um, don't make like your own business public. Um, and I think this is also connected to one of the biggest pieces of feedback our office gets from men and feedback. Like they tell us what they feel about it is that they don't feel like women's centers are for them. Mm -hmm. And like, maybe, but I think that's more connected to the demonization of femininity. Like I shouldn't go there because it's for women Mm -hmm. and it might be a reflection of me instead of like seeking that help. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think another barrier is just the we're so socialized to be so hypersexual um, and to always want sex and to always want sex all the time. And why would you ever turn down a sexual encounter or a sexual experience or something like that? And so um, when you are assaulted and it doesn't fit with, wait a minute, I'm supposed to want this all the time, but I did not want this. It doesn't feel good. It 
wasn't a positive experience. There's all these repercussions that are happening to me. Wait, maybe there's something wrong with me. And so it's really hard to out yourself as somebody who's been a victim because some people don't even think it's possible. Especially if your bros are like, dude, you totally got some last night, right? Like when there's outside reinforcement too of like you had a, if you had a shitty experience, you might feel like you have to act in front of your friends or whoever to, to maintain some level of social acceptance. Um, and that can just increase the amount of shame, increase the amount of confusion uh, as it relates to the idea of men wanting to have sex all the time. Um, and so that is also, I think, another barrier to this broader theme of, I think, cis hetero men in particular have a really difficult time naming or even recognizing that sexual assault is something that had happened to them in the mm -hmm. first place, right? Like naming that just out loud, I think, is a really huge barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that also links to ideas around homophobia. If the perpetrator for a male survivor is also another man, I think it intersects in a couple of different ways. I think biologically speaking, um, sometimes men who are being assaulted are have an erection and, and it culminates into an orga orgasm. Um, and I think for heterosexual men, that could absolutely be confusing to some degree. And the culture of men built on top of homophobia can then add another layer of like, wait, of, of confusion of like, wait, am I gay? Like, what, what, why did that happen? I don't understand myself anymore. Um, and then even admitting that you were assaulted by a man, the response could be, are you gay? Um, and if there's a fear of being gay because of the culture of men, that could be yet another barrier for heterosexual men to come mm -hmm. forward. Well, and just like in a lot of other situations, other identities, um, it's a pretty common response to, to go back through and say, wait a minute, how did I encourage this? Or how did I attract this? Or how did it, there must have been something that I did because we... We want to feel a sense of power or control back, mm -hmm. and when something like that is, you know, it's taken away from you in this really um, intimate and horrific way. And so, looking back, how did I encourage this? Also throws in when your perpetrator is also male. Um, also throws that into question as well of like, how did I drop signals to this person that this is something that I wanted? Because it's really hard I, I, for men, especially to. Um, see this outside of the realm of sex that this isn't about sex this is about power it's about control it's about domination um but leaving it in that realm of sex i think um it's i don't know trying to find some sort of an explanation um or reason and of course then it would throw into my sexual orientation might get thrown into question as well and even in my own head i, th I feel like as somebody who does a lot of counseling in this area i feel like that one's a really common one that these questions are there the idea of lack of awareness or recognition or naming an, an experience as assault also is kind of a barrier in the sense of there's a sort of a mainstream dominant narrative of what sexual assault or sexual violence is supposed to look like. And it's like heavy resistance. It's like fighting. I think about the Shawshank Redemption um, in terms of the way they sort of depict the rape of... Um, Andy? Yes. <laughs> Good job, Chris. Yeah. Uh, from the way back. That's from the... Oh, yeah. I guess this particular... But anyway... The point is, I think that picture of men having to resist assault to qualify it as assault also like makes invisible this huge spectrum of possibilities in terms of what might be registered as sexual assault, right? Like as some I put survivor in quotes when I was identifying that is because I don't actually feel like I survived anything. Like I always negotiate like was it just like a shitty night? Um and 
like i didn't fight i it, i felt manipulated honestly like i was like if we do this can we go to bed basically um and i don't think the term survivor fits the what happened to me you mm-hmm. know what i mean i don't even think victim fully functions as a word that encapsulates my experience and so when i think about the development of the word survivor and the development of narratives around what it means to be a survivor of ipv or sexual assault um i don't think that fits the way men would describe a majority of their experiences especially hetero men who are victims or survivors or whatever word that we're missing there of women um and I think the naming part of our experience is is a is a huge silence among survivors that we 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 have to start initiating the conversation amongst ourselves in order to sort of develop how are we going to name our experiences as men who experience things around sex that would fit the definition of sexual assault or rape, but the word victim and survivors to name it or to identify ourselves as doesn't mm-hmm. fit at all. Mm-hmm. I feel like you might have touched upon this a little bit already, but what do you see as some of the things that men, male survivors will do to cope with their experiences? Like, what are the things they present with and how are they coping with their experiences? They can be positive or negative. Well, I mean, it's a pretty wide range. How do people react to trauma in general? This one feels like some of the things that make this one unique is about, for me, is about the loss of power and control. And when we feel powerless, um, we do things to make ourselves feel powerful. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty natural reaction. We want to do that. We want to control the narrative. We want to control our environment. We want to control whatever to make, to, to feel like, wait a minute, no, I can get back into, into control. And so I guess for men specifically, I've seen some pretty, um, like hypersexuality, I think comes to mind for sure. sure. All right, I'm going to get back out there. I'm going to have more sexual experiences where I feel like I am in control or I feel like I can. Um, whether they're consent, you know, I hopefully ideally consensual across the board, um, but also it can be um, some maybe perhaps non-consensual experiences as mm-hmm. well, um, where I can take power, that sense of power and control back. Um, I think drugs and alcohol, I mean, partly that's, you know, where I, I live and breathe as a counselor often, um, drugs and alcohol is a really common one as well. So I'm having all these feelings. I don't want to have all these feelings. Great. I can smoke them away. I can Mm -hmm. drink them away. And now I don't have to have these feelings anymore. Um, it's the best part of weed is that we can take the feelings that we don't want away. Um, thank goodness, um, we have it available. Um, and it can be problematic as well, of course, um, uh, using drugs and alcohol as a coping sp- coping skill for pain, um, it's got its its dark side to it. Even though there is some um, break or distraction and things like that, um, yeah. I think the one that I meet with the most is resistance. So when I'm presenting on like sexual assault 101 stuff, I often frame the most resistant men as either perpetrators or survivors of sexual assault because. Reacting in anger or reacting in denial, I think, is a fairly common reaction as well to, like, I don't want to think or believe that this happened to me. So then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick this moment where I haven't learned how to deal with my feelings to mm. react in anger and disbelief and minimize and distract. Um, so I do think the, and maybe this also ties into power and control, but the when, this, when the conversation or the subject comes up, to go the other way and say it wasn't that big a deal, um, it was your fault. Um, you know, 
what were you thinking? That kind of stuff, I think, is also a projection of uh, the way that they're feeling about their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else you want to add around the things that male survivors might show up? As far as coping skill or how they deal with it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, the other one I would say, you know, which would fall more on the negative side would be like isolation and withdrawal. Sure. Yeah, um, it's a huge one. I, you know, pulling back, feeling like I'm the only one, not yep. being able to share any of this stuff. And so I would say, you know, as a kind of like a number one coping skill, um, when you're ready, when you feel comfortable, um, find the right person and and tell your story um, and share the information with somebody, um, whether that's an advocate or a counselor or a friend or a family member or something like that. So that to try to decrease the chances of being so isolated from other people, like connection, I think is just really, really important. So I would say that would be one I would hope for. So what do you feel like, what do you both feel like we as like, whether it's a staff at a women's center, advocates, counselors, therapists, whatever that is, what do you feel like we can do to better serve male survivors? I mean, I don't, I don't know that you all do this necessarily or could do this necessarily, but I think when we get stories out in the media um, of famous men who identify as victims or survivors of sexual assault, like that really matters to people like, Mm -hmm. um, Terry Crews. Yeah. I think when he came out and shared all that information, I think for other men to be able to say, I mean, I know that there was, I'm sure there's tons of backlash and tons of negative response as well. It was gross. I think the, for the folks who also identify as victims and survivors and to see somebody take that step, um, without the horrible gross backlash, but, um, I think that that matters. And so anything that we can do to reduce the stigma and increase people's education and awareness that this is a thing that happens, this is the, a thing that happens here on our campus, you know, every semester, let alone every month or every week where there is a man who um, is assaulted by another man or another woman um, is assaulted. And that's a real thing that happens to people. And the repercussions are also really real. Um and, and powerful. If we could have more conversation where that was something um, that was just more out on the surface, I think it would really help a lot of other men um, feel like they had a place to go or they could have a place to talk. Yeah, I don't actually know um, if there's necessarily a solution to removing the barriers because it's, it, it feels like it's really up to men to start melting those barriers a little bit too, right? And again, this is again, where it gets tricky around it sounding victim blamey, like I'm, I'm kind of basically saying it's your fault for not coming in or your fault for letting those barriers get to you. I think the best way is to like notice or try to notice when behavior shifts and then caring for that person. Um, and maybe specifically other like men caring for that person. Um, and that can be tough because we're taught not to care about other people and empathize and recognize when behavior shifts in weird ways but like asking someone like what's going on with you like are you okay what happened in a one-on-one setting because groups of men can be brutal um but for like centers or advocates i feel like the the one-on-one stuff shouldn't necessarily change and i'm sure there's differences and nuances in there that we didn't brainstorm or prepare for but um for the most part, like validating someone's experience is so powerful for that person of like, yeah, man, like that sounds like it sucked. Like, do you want to keep talking about it? Or, um, you know, that's, that's wrong and that shouldn't have happened to you. Um, 
there something that we want to do moving forward or like whatever right so i think just using the same acronym skills that you would for any other survivors um because that you know some of these things some of these barriers that we named around men's supposed to be strong men's supposed to want sex like no one escapes those beliefs necessarily right so believing men when they say what they experienced felt wrong it's it's elementary but sometimes we can forget that about men i just so love carl what you said about um how men looking out for other men and approaching them in a one-on-one situation right where of like hey you notice a behavior change or you notice a demeanor change in a friend or a colleague of yours and it's just like checking in with the person and i think we as women do that and in and it comes a little bit more naturally or we're taught to do that and it just comes it's just something that we do but we don't often see that amongst men and i love i just love that you made that point here um, so what, uh, what last thoughts do you all have? Is there anything else you wanted to just add and share here? One of the other things, and this is part of my last thought as well, that I liked <laughs> about, I like how you phrased your questions, Carl, because, um, I think sometimes when men are sharing with other men about a sexual assault, it's really hard or really awkward, um, or uncomfortable for both people. And then when it's over, it's like, okay, phew, that was really, that was really awkward. Okay. Yeah. We'll move on. And then I never go back to it. And, and some of your questions were like, would you like to talk about this more? You know, can I check in with you about this? Do you want to keep going? Like all those kinds of things, like asking for permission and like, and, and staying with the conversation, um, rather than like showing up at that one time, and, and, and doing a really nice job with it, but then ask for permission. Can I check in with you about this again later? Do you want to keep talking about it? Is this something that, you know, do you want help going to this next thing? Like kind of asking for permission, asking for consent to continue that support. I think, uh, yeah, it just really seems like it would land in a really good spot to give that other person some more control around, yes, I want to talk about it, or here's when I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it when you and I are just kind of in a one-on-one, but I don't want to talk about it in this situation or in this environment or something like that. So anyway. Which can be like really difficult too, right? Like you don't, you shouldn't be comfortable when you're doing that. Like, well, I mean, if you are great, but like. <laughs> it's okay if you're not. It's, yeah. it's really okay if you're not. The point is that you do it. Um, yeah. Work through the discomfort together. I guarantee you the relationship there is going to improve. Because I'm thinking about, back to final thoughts, like I'm thinking about this podcast for people who identify as victims and survivors, but I'm thinking about the people who are also in those people's lives, in those men's lives. So if a man comes to you and shares with you that something happened, like, you know, do all those things that you would do when any, everybody, and whenever anybody else comes to you to talk about trauma, um, you know, don't victim blame them. Um, Don't try to give advice, just to ask questions and be there and just be as supportive as you can. Believe them. Yeah. Yeah. It can be weirdly coded too, though, right? Like you might have to be a little bit of an interpreter or like continue to ask questions because mm. um, it's probably a really big moment for the dude. Like it's an incredibly vulnerable thing to do. And we don't exercise our vulnerability muscle <laughs> very often as men. Uh, so it can be like really indirect and it might take a while. And maybe you need to go get a beer, but like, buy it a little bit into bro culture in order to coax some of that out um, but the point is to try to get them to be comfortable right so if they're coming to you to tell you this you must know them decently well so like do some stuff around helping them out i don't have any last thoughts i'm not jerry springer <laughs> well thank you both so much this has been great i think you've really added some good insight for our listeners so thank you thanks for having us deuces <laughs> So I do hope that you found our conversation helpful. One of the things you may notice is that we focused a lot on men who are survivors of sexual assault as adults, 
We know that one in six men are survivors of sexual abuse. But one important thing to note is that the majority of those men are sexually assaulted before their 16th birthday. This could be by a family member, friend, clergy member, or other adult in the child's life. What this means is that so many of the men at CSU are already coming to campus having had this experience. And often before men are able to identify what happened to them as sexual violence, they'll resort to some of the coping techniques that Carl and Chris mentioned, like using drugs and alcohol, resistance, or even hypersexuality. I've worked with several male survivors who didn't tell anyone about their abuse until they reached college, in large part because they couldn't identify what happened to them as sexual abuse. One survivor I worked with was experiencing all these relationship issues, and it wasn't until he told a close friend about what happened to him as a child that he began to see the connection between his sexual abuse and how it was creating problems with intimacy. So often, male survivors will enter therapy or seek help for things outside of their survivor identity. But through the process of seeking help, sometimes their trauma comes to the surface, and they're able to begin recovering from what happened to them. One of the greatest challenges in supporting male survivors, and one we've certainly seen surface through our work at the WGAC, is that when it comes to thinking about oppression, male survivors are unique in that they share an identity with their oppressor. So our patriarchal society has made it unacceptable for men to express any sort of emotion or show any vulnerability, making it extremely difficult for male survivors to come to terms with what happened to them. As a whole, we've made the only acceptable emotion for men anger, And so their trauma is more likely to get turned into violence or aggression, none of which actually helps them heal. And so male survivors have to go against these stereotypes just to ask for help. And Carl talked in the interview about how sometimes we hear that male survivors express feeling like the WGAC or other women's centers in general aren't for them. Or some men express concern that they don't want to take up advocacy services or group space from other survivors who might need it more than them. What I can say is that the times when men have come to the WGAC for advocacy services, they've been welcomed. We've opened up our groups to survivors of all genders and have since had men attend group on multiple occasions. The groups have been welcoming and supportive of the men attending. And so if you're wondering of a place that you can go and talk, we hope we've made it clear that the WGAC can be a place for you. And just like Carl and Chris said, we need to begin to share the stories of male survivors and create a culture where the norm is men helping other men. When male survivors dare to be vulnerable and share about their experiences, they give permission for other men to do the same. They tear down that incredibly damaging stereotype of non-emotional hypermasculinity. Carl talked a bit about the work that he does with men in the movement at CSU, and this can be a great space if you're looking to explore masculinity and work to bring about positive societal change. Carl and Chris also did a really good job talking about how you can support a male friend who is a survivor. But the one thing I'd like to add here is that maybe it's not a friend, but a child or family member who discloses to you. Understanding how sexual abuse can impact male survivors is important. And keep in mind that struggling with addiction is often a warning sign that there may be deeper issues at play, including childhood trauma. You'll want to approach male survivors with the same compassion and love you would any survivor, And remember that male survivors may not yet be ready to confront what happened to them. So patience and understanding is key. But before we close out the episode, I wanted to share a few resources. There are books out there written by and for male survivors, and I've covered one in this season's recommendation show called Victims No Longer, 
The Classic Guide for Men Recovering from Child Sexual Abuse by Mike Liu. So if you haven't yet, give that episode a listen. And one other resource I wanted to share is the website One in Six. It's a website specifically for male survivors of sexual abuse or assault. There's a whole bunch of resources on there, including a list of recommended books and films. Another important service offered by this organization is that they offer weekly chat-based online support groups for male survivors and even one group specifically for partners of male survivors. To find out more about these groups, you can visit their website at oneinsix.org. The Wings Foundation in Colorado also has support groups specifically for male survivors of child sexual abuse or incest that meet in person weekly. The Wings Foundation will also provide referrals for qualified therapists in Colorado who have experienced working with adult survivors of child sexual abuse, including male survivors. And of course, the WGAC is here for men too. We're a space for men to seek advocacy services or to connect with other men who are passionate about addressing gender-based violence. That's all for this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have feedback, thoughts, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac.colostate.edu. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Hadley for creating the music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.